the moderator for this evening's discussion. He is the Linda and Jack Gill Professor of Biology at the University of Kentucky. And this evening, your moderator for our panel discussion, who will introduce the other members of our panel. With great pleasure, I'd like to introduce Dr. Brian Ryman. Um, welcome, and, and thank you, Dave. I, I'm not gonna be able to project like Dave does. That's a remarkable <laughs> voice. I think we all agree with that. I wish I had that voice. Um, so th the title of tonight's presentation is The Frontiers of, of, of Genetics uh, in Genomics. And what I hope to do here in the first five minutes or so is give you a transition between the days of Thomas Hunt Morgan uh, to the current time and tell you a little bit about the events that uh, have brought us through science to this point. Uh, I've got collected here uh, six colleagues from the University of Kentucky who have experience in the assembly and application of, um, of genomic technologies in plants and animals uh, with interests that range from you know, doing the, the field studies to considering the ethical uh, dilemmas associated with uh, topics like manipulating genomes. Uh, and interest in education and public outreach. And so we have a broad uh, 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 set of uh, expertise here, uh, and we hope to have some lively discussion. And so uh, as introductions, uh, from uh, uh, left to right, we have Stephen Dobson, who's the uh, professor of, in medical and veterinary uh, entomology in the College of Agriculture, the University of Kentucky. Uh, Brett Spear is a professor of microbiology and immunology and uh, molecular genetics in the University of uh, Kentucky Medical School. Uh, Paul Vincelli, who's a professor, uh, uh, a plant pathology research extension professor and, and a provost distinguished service professor. Pete Marabito, who's an associate professor in the Department of, of Biology. Uh, Jeremiah Smith, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Biological Sciences uh, and Biology as well and Julia Bernstein, who's an assistant professor in the philosophy department in the College of Arts and Sciences. If we just wait for a second, I'm gonna to try to take this in my hand. It might be a little bit easier and you might hear a little bit better. Okay, great. And so, to, uh, Thomas Hunt Morgan. Um, if I said, you know, Colonel Sanders, John Calipari, Mitch McConnell, those names have reasonably good name recognition across the United States, and people understand that they come from <coughs> Kentucky, uh, less so perhaps for the general public for Thomas Hunt Morgan, but I can tell you with a high degree of certainty, there has not been a student in a genetics class anywhere in this earth over the last 50 years who hasn't studied uh, and benefited from the, the, uh, the work done by Thomas Hunt Morgan. Uh, born in, in, uh, uh, in Lexington, Kentucky on September 25th, 1866, he was a graduate of the, uh, the progenitor of the University of Kentucky, the College of Kentucky, where he got his master's, uh, bachelor's and master's degrees before going on to Johns Hopkins University where he got his PhD. Uh, had a long and illustrious career. I mean, all of you probably know or, or have hints that he did something with fruit flies, and he indeed was, did most of his genetic work in flies and had uh, uh, gained his Nobel Prize uh, in medicine uh, and physiology uh, due to that work. But he was also a, um, a quite an uh, integrated biologist and contributed his science in development, regeneration, and evolution as well as, as biology. He was a skeptic. 
Okay, and if you had to characterize him with one word, he was a skeptic. And so he was a bright and talented scientist, but he had expressed in written form a real skepticism about fundamental aspects of biology and genetics. So he was skeptical about Gregor Mendel's laws of segregation and independent assortment. And that's kind of hard to believe, isn't it? He was, uh, he was skeptical about the chromosomal theory of genetic inheritance. Yeah, there's chromosomes in cells, but these things dissociate and come back together through every cell cycle. They can't possibly be the permanent things necessary to move genes about. He was, he was skeptical about the basic foundations of neo-Darwinism and how it related to evolution. How could it possibly be that the selection is working on these very small incremental changes? How could that possibly generate new species? So with the skepticism, he was also um, had very high standards of proof uh, and he believed in experimental validation. Basically, if you had a hypothesis and you couldn't test it, it really wasn't worth beans. And so he is now known as the father of experimental genetics with good justification. So it was, it was actually in the lab testing aspects of uh, uh, Darwinian predictions where he found that first mutant. And Dave asked me not to do it, but I will do it. It was a white-eyed mutant, okay? Uh, and it was a white-eyed mutant was a rare occurrence uh, in his fly populations. He was looking for mutants. He was, he was hitting these flies with radiation, hoping to find mutants to learn whether you needed cataclysmic changes in the genome to cre create new species. Well, he found this, this uh, white-eyed fly, and through some very careful experimentation, what he was able to demonstrate was that the, that uh, that uh, gene that was mutated was actually found on the X chromosome, the sex chromosome of flies. And this was the very first time anyone placed a gene on a chromosome. And in this case, it was the X chromosome. And these sort of X-linked genes, or, or sex chromosome-linked genes, are common, right? They're common in humans. Uh, Red-green uh, color blindness in males, hemophilia in males. These are sex-linked genes in humans. Uh, lots of mutants came after that initial study, and he and his, uh, his collaborators, his students, uh, collected these mutants and, and, and asked questions about uh, where they were within the genome, and he found that a whole bunch of mutants would lie together on the four chromosomes of Drosophila melanogaster. And his student, Alfred Sturdivant, realized that there was a relationship between these genes and that you could ask, uh, you could determine how far apart they were from one another on a chromosome by looking how often they recombined during sex cell or egg formation. And through these sorts of studies created the very first genetic map. So laying down genes along the, the length of a chromosome, a, a real monumental uh, accomplishment. And to this day, geneticists everywhere use his name in the measurement of genetic distance. It's called a centimorgan, and it's used currently as well as uh, through the last 170 years anyway. So lots of studies went on in his lab um, at both Columbia University and at Caltech predominantly where they looked at the dynamics of chromosome structure, recombination to mutagenesis and helped develop that fruit fly system for the model that it is and a model that's had enormous benefit in understanding basic principles of how body axes develop 
in humans as well as in flies. So a lot of the basic biology uh, has been worked out in the fruit fly model before it was ever known or tested in any more complex organism. Um, the other thing he's known for is he was, a, he was an open and collaborative individual, someone that uh, welcomed students in his lab and treated them like equals. Um, he, in essence, spent his entire life and made his career by proving himself wrong. Okay? I told you about that skepticism. Well, he actually went out and tested each one of these things and proved himself wrong. And that was a, a, a real key to his success. He was open to being challenged. He was also generous in the reagents he generated and really changed the way science is done. So science moves by the development of enabling technologies uh, promoted, that promote conceptual advances. And I just told you about some with Morgan, but now I'm going to go through a blitzkrieg of, of events that happened over the last oh, 70 years or so that brought us to our panel and the questions we'll address to them. And so, you know, in the, in the late 1920s, Frederick Griffith showed something very interesting. It's a scientist that showed that basically you could take a dead microbe, a dead, dead bacteria, and transfer genetic information from that dead bacteria to a live bacteria. Okay. Well, that seems kind of silly, not very helpful or thoughtful. But, you know, at the time he did that experiment, people believed that those sorts of factors transferred could only happen during, you know, sort of sexual events. They had to have a vital force. There was some vital force that was necessary. And they just ruled that out. No, you didn't. You could have this genetic information. It did not need to come from an, a living organism. Avery, McLeod, McCarthy, Hershey, and Chase, these are people that found that the, the genetic information was not only present in chromosomes, okay, the chromosome theory that, uh, that, uh, um, uh, uh, that was so well established in Morgan's lab, but it was the DNA present on the chromosomes. It wasn't the proteins, it wasn't the RNAs, the other components, it was the DNA that was on the chromosome that was important. Beatum and Tatum uh, developed what's called the one gene, one enzyme uh, hypothesis, and what they showed was that the genes act not by some nebulous, you know, uh, screaming out into the heavens to create a new character, but by producing proteins. And the, the proteins were actually the active uh, character for a lot of genes, at least, in uh, gene expression. We had uh, Nuremberg and Corona who developed the, the uh, defined the genetic code. So taking this, this long, so DNA molecules are composed of four little letters strung together in polymers, G's, A's, T's, and C's. And having um, a, a long list of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, of millions of these nucleotides isn't much, much use unless you know how to decode it. And so they were decoded by these folks. Uh, lots of other uh, experimental advances. Barbara McClintock identified mobile DNA uh, transposable elements, pieces of DNA that jump around genomes. Uh, she found this in the 40s, eventually got a Nobel Prize for it. Uh, these sorts of jumping pieces of DNA have really important implications for evolution and disease. Uh, you all know about, uh, uh, about Jim Watson, uh, Francis Creek, Rosalind Frankwood, Maurice Wilkins, determining the structure, the double-stranded DNA structure. And not only is it a pretty image, but the nature of the structure, the two strands of DNA, tells you an awful lot, led to a hypothesis on how cells, when they divide, could partition evenly that DNA. 
in the 1970s or in the 60s, we had uh, two French scientists, Jacob and Monod, who started working out the details and how these things called genes actually work. And what they found was that the genes that are, are, are active or not active, depending upon environmental cues, and in order to be have two states, an active state or an unactive, inactive state, you needed some way to regulate it. And they found a series of, of, uh, of, of pieces of DNA, uh, pieces of DNA adjacent to genes, as well as other genes that control networks of gene expression. And they worked with a simple bacteria, E. coli, to work those out. Another set of Nobel Prizes came there. Uh, Sanger, uh, Fred Sanger, Walter Gilbert developed DNA sequencing act uh, ability. So you could now read the DNA sequence of any organism. Cohen, Abner, Boyer, Nathan Smith, these are the people that generated the, the ideas that went into the recombinant DNA revolution. A revolution that kind of started about the time I started in science. They developed and isolated a bunch of enzymes that allowed you to take any genome, take any organism, and cut up its DNA in a, a clear and reproducible way. And by using this sort of technology, be able to isolate genes, isolate genes that encoded specific traits. Okay. Um, Capecci, Evans, and Smithies, they used embryonic stem cells to recreate recombinant mice, so change gene structure within a complex organism like a mouse. Um, in the 90s and beyond, we had a real revolution and technical revolution in the way one could read mass sequences of DNA. So when I started as an undergraduate, there was one completed genome, of a small genome, 5,000 base pairs of a, of a small virus called Phi-X. Uh, by 2001, we had the three billion base pairs of human genome done. And now we're doing genomes and genomes and genomes. I looked a week ago and there was almost 100,000 genomes on the federal database. Uh, in addition to these sort of uh, uh, great technical advances in DNA sequencing, you've probably heard a lot about gene editing technologies. And this is one of the things that's in the news a lot now. We now have some really precise ways to take cells, even complex cells, cells from complex organisms like humans, and make site-specific changes within particular genes, remove genes, add genes, or change their structure in a very precise way. Uh, we're now often said to be in a, a post genomics world, and where we've got all of this information and the ability to make such wonderful changes uh, that we're, we're capable of doing truly synthetic biology, where we can create new genes, new biological functions, uh, potentially re restore extinct species, or even create new organisms. And with all this technology comes uh, sort of ethical burdens and challenges as well. And this is something that now more than ever, the public needs to be involved with. So we're going to move to our, our group here. And um, Jeremiah Smith, down the, near the end. And, and, and so the question I have from Jeremiah is that we've, we have this technology now to, to read uh, enormous genomes. And so we're talking about terabit, terabyte levels of, of data from a single, single experiment, uh, where you get these, these enormous compendiums of A's, G's, T's, and C's. So what, what's, you know, what, what are, how are the scientists dealing with these enormous genomes? How do they extract information from it? And, and as importantly, how do you take this information and communicate it in a, in a, a cogent way, both to the scientists and, the, and to the general public? 
mic up. Yeah. All right, thanks, Brian. Um, so the I think the one challenge in both analysis and communication um, when we're thinking about the human genome um, is understanding the scale of the problem, um, the scale of what we're analyzing. So if you think about the human genome, it's basically the recipe to make a human, right? Um, but if we look at if we think about a recipe book, um, that's pretty small in comparison. So the human genome is three billion bases. Um, those bases are incredibly tiny. Um, if I took if if I unraveled the whole human genome um, and sort of held it out, it actually wouldn't fall because it only weighs uh, six trillionths of a gram. Um, but if I took if I took the genome and glued all the chromosomes together and held it out, um, I would actually hold it here and it would it would hit the floor. So it's a little over you know, a little over six feet long, um, the DNA in every single one of your cells. Um, and, that, and, and that DNA consists of three billion A's, G's, C's, well, six billion if you count both copies, A's, G's, C's, and T's. Um, that's a lot of information. Um, it's a lot of information for a human to think about. It's a lot of information for a powerful computer to process on. Um, and computers are great and they continue to get better, right? So there's, um, I had, I had a slide prepared, but I'll just describe to you the slide. Um, and it's not my slide, it's the government slide. Um, it, it describes sort of um, something called Moore's Law, which reflects the improvement in computation power over time. Um, and essentially, there was, um, Moore's Law predicted, and this is held true, that, that processing power um, essentially has doubled every two years. Um, since the invention of computers. And so now we have computers in our pocket that are um, 100 times more powerful than the computers that put the first man on the moon, or the, the computers that did the calculations to put the first man on the moon. Um, and this is a spectacular pace. I mean, even, even the youngest, does, youngest of us in the crowd can appreciate the difference between the computers we saw as children and the computers that we see, and the computers we see now. Um, and for a long period of time, the, the rate of improvement in sequencing also tracked the rate of improvement of com in computation until about 2009. Um, and in 2009, um, these two curves dramatically began to dramatically diver diverge from one another, where our ability to um, sequence base pairs of DNA began to ra rapidly outpace the clip at which we could, at, at which the computers we used to analyze that data. Um, improved, um, and this this continued on for, and it actually continues to this day. So now, where where in 2001 or the years leading up to 2001, um, it costs roughly three billion dollars to sequence the the human genome for the first time. Now we can literally sequence um, the human genome for a thousand dollars, and yes, and, and we can do it essentially overnight. <laughs> um, um, now we. The analysis is much more com complicated, and it turns out that our sequencing today is not um, is different, fundamentally different from the sequencing of the past. So today, we're generating two or three hundred base pair snippets of of sequence data, whereas in the past it was longer but more expensive. Um, 
And dealing with those snip, dealing with smaller pieces of DNA complicates the question of, okay, now I know 300 base pairs of DNA that fit somewhere among 3 million base pairs of DNA, and I have to then leverage this information to learn about one base pair change that, that occurs somewhere in the genome. Um, so I think this, this sort of appreciation of scale and this um, is, is critical for sort of communicating the results that people have, but it's also, it also drives sort of um, the need of biologists to understand these data. So in, in a sense, I think that scale motivates both ends of, both ends of this question. And so, Jeremiah, so the bioinformatics, right, that's, that's the word we'll use for the computational deconvolution of all these Gs, As, Ts, and Cs into biologically relevant information. And that biologically relevant information could be, you know, where's the gene associated with cystic fibrosis? Or it could be, you know, where are the genes? Or it could be, where are the transcribed regions of the genome? Uh, there have been some real rapid advances there and still some bottlenecks. Do uh, you want to say anything about that? I mean, where, where do we need more help? Um, well, I, and I think, you know, technology moves forward and, and companies identify these bottlenecks. So, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the ways in which we move forward is so we can sequence a human genome for $1,000. Um, and that gives us access to about, I think the, the estimate now is roughly 80 or 85% of the genes that we know about in the human genome. Um, we can accurately assess whether or not that gene ha carries a mutation that's, that makes it differ from what the sort of con you know, typical sequences of that gene. Um, now, that means there's, there's about 20, you know, 15 to 20 percent of the genes where we have difficulty in assessing that because they're either too similar to each other um, or they're too, the, the, the internal sequence is too, is too simple, um, which means, which is pushing some of these technologies toward longer, toward generating longer and longer sequences. Um, the other underlying challenge is really in the definition of what is a gene. So a gene can be like the part of the DNA that makes an RNA that then makes a protein. Um, but the information that, that dictates when that gene is turned on, um, in what context, um, is in sort of a vast area surrounding that gene. And so ascribing function to the individual A's, G's, and C, A's, G's, C's, and T's that lie outside of those regions of the genome is still, we've made a lot of progress, but it's still a major challenge in, in understanding sort of the definition of the gene for whatever. And some of this will come back to experimentation. And so we can, do, we can push things so far on the computer, but at some right. point go back to the organism. And let me just ask one last little question. Um, Jeremiah works in my department, and he happens to work with among the ugliest fish that are known to man. Uh, so he works with the sea lamprey, which we all have this image of them you know, hanging off of lake trout, sucking the juices out of them, and something called a hagfish. I've never really seen a hagfish, but I can't imagine it's too pretty. Uh, and so, even uglier. Even uglier. And so the question is, okay, we, like I said, when I started as an undergraduate, there was one genome finished. Now the database says there's approaching 100,000. What's the next one? Why, what basis do you use to choose a particular genome? What new information do you get out of it by looking at a hagfish? Um, well, I mean, the basis that I use to choose a genome is based on um, either 
the biology of the animal. So there are a lot of animals that do things that we can't do, that maybe in some cases we'd even like to do. So um, lampreys have this cool ability to basically um, genetically re-engineer their own genome over the course of development. Um, that the way we visualize is they sort of help pre prevent cancer. They turn off the genes that are going to cause cancer. It's probably more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. um, we also work with salamanders, and salamanders, if you cut a salamander's arm off, he'll grow it, he'll grow it right back. And um, I don't think I would. I'm not going to do the experiment, but I, I probably wouldn't grow my arm back. Um, and so really, and, and additionally, lampreys um, are highly divergent from us. So lamprey, the, our, we shared a common ancestor with lamprey 500 million years ago. Um, and by comparing lamprey to human or chicken or other vertebrates, we can actually learn something about what the very deep ancestral genome looked like. And more importantly, learn about what changes have taken place that sort of have given rise to our own unique biology, our own unique development. Okay. Thank you. And, and so, you know, we can, we can think about Reading, reading and writing genomes, right? We can think about reading the genome, we think about doing recombinant DNA technology to modify genes, and, and that's being done and has been done. Uh, you know, one of the areas that you and the audience have heard a, a lot about are, are genetically modified foods, right? And so genetically modified foods have been around for quite a while. Matter of fact, when you go to the grocery store, you're buying some. Um, and, and so, you know, we're, we're now talking about plants, we're talking about grains especially, and there's been a lot of uh, controversy, not only in this country, but especially in Europe. Essentially, you know, genetically modified foods have been presented as both scourges and salvations for humanity. Uh, Paul, do you want to handle that and tell me what, what's, your, what's your opinion? Great, thanks. Um, yeah, it's a very good um, topic I have a lot of interest in. And uh, so this is a Honeycrisp apple. And um, so my question is, am I eating DNA? Raise your hand if you think I'm eating DNA. OK, good. Yes, thank you for having the courage to raise your hand. I am eating DNA. I'm eating DNA of an apple, probably DNA of bacteria, yeast on the surface of the apple, uh, maybe some fungal DNA. Uh, maybe some insect eggs, DNA. From, so, so DNA is not harmful in, in our diet. Um, this is, by the way, a um, sweet potato, just a normal sweet potato of the type that we would eat uh, every Thanksgiving. And it's, uh, we learned a year and a half ago that uh, we, I say scientists, uh, not, I didn't do the work, but we learned that, um, that sweet potato has uh, genes of bacteria as part of its genome. And so nature does crazy things with uh, DNA, and they're perfectly, um, it's perfectly fine to eat that DNA, too. So uh, recognizing Thomas Hunt Morgan and all the wonderful people that have done genetics research over the years, that has led to applications in agriculture that are, have been very important. So every advanced um, genetic um, breeding technique that we have, and, and there are quite a few, some are very wild and crazy, much crazier than, to my mind, than genetic engineering, at least by some measures. And um, we owe it all to, uh, to uh, the geneticists of the world. So, um, and, and I, I think there are some in this audience that may know this quite well, but for those of you who don't, I think the best 
For me, the best analogy for understanding genetic engineering is to think about um, copying and pasting in a, in a word file. Um, so you can uh, identify a sentence in this book that you think would work very well in this book, and you can copy and paste. And and uh, and the book is still book. The, the book has not become hazardous as a result of that that action. Now the book may read better or it may be, read worse. And we determine that through testing of the plant after the transmission of genetic material. But the mere act of manipulating the DNA does not create a new hazard to, um, to the, the crop plant. So that, that analogy is, I think, the one that describes the, the hundreds and hundreds of papers that have been done over the years on, on the safety issue. And in fact, um, I think the the, uh, I mean, there are issues. There are definitely issues, and we can talk more about that in the Q&A. I'd be glad to stay afterwards and talk until the library closes. Um, but um, but, uh, but the, the, the food safety question, I think, has really received a lot of attention over the years. We want safe food, and uh, we don't want to use this technology if it's not going to be safe. But, uh, it, uh, but we, can, we can see what uh, the, the scientists of the world have done in terms of what, what they've concluded in terms of the safety of these by reading such things as the National Academy of Sciences most recent report and their previous reports, by the way. They're still, still saying the same thing. No, the food, genetically engineered food is as safe as conventionally bred food. Um, I have, and this is true for the European scientific communities. I'm not talking about the European publics because they are, you know, the public drives democracy, and that's how it should be, but their scientific communities see genetic engineering no differently from ours. And um, so I did put a copy of, a one-page copy of some quotes from scientific societies in terms of the safety issue. Uh, if it's gone, just let me know, and you could email me, and I'll send you a copy. Um, I, I, and I think I want to wrap it up with just a couple quick uh, points. One, um, I, I don't have any conflicts of interest in this topic. I receive no money whatsoever beyond my normal salary to talk about genetic engineering. And, and I'm given that salary no matter what I say. It depends, it, I'm, I'm a completely independent scientist. So I do this because I think it's a, it's a useful set of technologies and, and with issues, concerns that we can discuss. But, um, but it's a useful set of technologies. Um, I think that's it. Okay, Paul. Let me let me just ask you a couple of questions. First sure. of all, like I made the comment, people are eating things at Kroger that are made through sure. recombinant DNA technology, yes. and so the sorts of changes that the, the plant biologists are introducing are going to do some things beneficial. So they're either going to improve yield or uh, insect resistance or herbicide resistance or improve nutrition. So what are we actually finding out there? When I go down to Kroger, what, I'm, what am I going to buy that's been modified and in what way? So, um, so anything that derives from co field corn, so corn syrup, uh, high fructose corn syrup, um, corn starches, um, those often are going to be from genetically engineered corn. Um, soybean, any, you know, that's commonly used for not only soybean oil, but for uh, animal feed. So those, there's a, you know, there's a connection there with genetically engi uh, engineered foods. Most of what you see in the produce aisle is not genetically engineered. There can be sometimes uh, engineered papaya, 
engineered yellow squash, um, but um, and and a couple apples and uh, and uh, potatoes that are emerging out of the, in the marketplace. Most of the genetic engineering traits are for the large agronomic crops, and they they include herbicide tolerance, so which is a really remarkable technology if you want to save yourself the backbakering labor of of um, hoeing. But it but it's it's really not the herbicide tolerance. If you're familiar with Roundup Ready crops, that to me is not the iconic example of a genetically engineered crop because this, there's pros and cons to that, that technology. But insect resistance, that has been very successful. And yes, there are challenges with that, but that has consistently resulted worldwide in the reduction of insecticides. I mean, I'm, f I'm for the reduction of insecticides. Um, we ha and, and, the, and the thing that I want to say to the, the, the uh, geneticists and the bioinformaticists of the world is they've done, they have blown open the doors in terms of what we can do. I see huge opportunities. And again, I, this is just me talking as a scientist. I see huge opportunities for disease control and reduction of pesticide use. This is my area um, with genetic engineering and conventional breeding too. We're not gonna throw that out. Thank, thank you, Paul. And we'll bring up this topic, I'm sure, in the question and answer. I mean, one, one issue that comes forward is, you know, who owns the rights? You know, are we limiting the availability to spread these wonderful technology because Monsanto holds the rights? Uh, or are we limiting the genetic potential of the organism if we only use this modified crop? And so there are complexities that, that run in here. We, we talked about, uh, you know, insect resistance in, in plants. Um, you know, I, I looked at a, uh, a World Health Organization report from two years ago, and the estimate is that over one million humans die every year from insect uh, uh, vector-derived diseases. And so malaria, dengue fever, West Nile virus, yellow fever, Zika, right? These are all um, uh, human uh, uh, pathogens that come about through insect vectors. They could be viral, they could be protozoan, they could be bacterial. Uh, many of them being transferred by uh, uh, mosquitoes. And so we've, we've had now this wonderful gene editing technology that allows very pinpoint changes to be made in genomes. And mosquitoes have been a real focus, in part because Bill, Bill Gates has dug deep into his pocket and said he wanted to stop malaria. Okay. And so there's been some really great advances in changing, uh, in changing mosquitoes, and, and typically in a couple of ways, where the end result is easy, either to prevent the propagation of the pathogen within the mosquito vector, so the pathogen goes into the mosquito and then into humans. If you can stop it in the mosquito, the human doesn't get it. Or engineering the flies, or the mosquitoes rather, in such a way that they, they block reproduction. Um, Stephen, you've been working in this area. Do you want to want to give us a lowdown on, on you know, well, we know what's being what, these things are being done in the laboratory, but where are we and how close are we to uh, releasing animals, uh, uh, releasing these genetically engineered mosquitoes? Yeah, thanks, Brian. Uh, so we, it's it's happening now, uh, not in the U.S., uh, but uh, uh, there are places in the world where they are releasing genetically modified mosquitoes. Brazil. Um, 
Cayman Islands, for example. Um, there, there's uh, private companies that are doing that. Um, <clears throat> qualify this to say, um, I, I'm talking about uh, GMO organisms, but uh, I don't technically work with them, so I'm just uh, an acting, uh, play a doctor on TV. Um, but, um, but yeah, at the, on November 8th, if you lived in the Florida Keys, uh, in addition to voting for a couple of other issues, you would get to, to vote on a referendum as to whether to release genetically modified mosquitoes into the Florida Keys. So this is currently a very hot issue. It does have regulatory approval. It, uh, it's being regulated by the Food and Drug Administration. And, um, uh, but the, the, the board, so, so, so there is what's called a mosquito control district, and it's pr um, supported by people's property taxes uh, that manages the mosquitoes. And so they would be the ones taking responsibility for the release of these mosquitoes. And they are uh, watching to see the outcome of this public referendum. And it's become, you may have seen some of the stories, but it's become quite a, a popular media event. And so one question you might ask yourself is, well, why would you do that? Why would you release genetically modified mosquitoes? And, and who, who would allow that to happen? Uh, the key things to remember are, number one, uh, only female mosquitoes bite. Okay? So I could uh, put my arm into a cage full of male mosquitoes and not have any mosquito bites at all. Okay? And that's what they would be doing. They would be releasing only male mosquitoes that don't bite. These males would be genetically modified. They essentially stick in a, um, a cassette of genes, if you will, which are, has anybody seen the Jurassic Park movie? It's, it's the exact same premise of that, where um, the mosquitoes have to be reared on a compound in the laboratory, and if you take that compound away, they can't complete their life cycle. Okay, so in the lab, the mosquitoes, you can make as many of them as you'd like. But then you release those males in the field as a dominant gene, so, or gene cassette. So when these males mate with females in the field, and then those females don't have access to this drug, it's tetracycline if you're interested, a uh, commonly used antibiotic. Uh, but in the absence of that, they self-destruct, they, they die. And so essentially this would be used as a pesticide. You release lots and lots of these males. The males, nothing's better at finding female mosquitoes than a male mosquito. They would fly around, mate with the females, and essentially sterilize them. Um, so, so there's a lot of people, a lot of discussion about this. I um, imagine there might be a little discussion tonight about that. Um, but really, I mean, you're facing a situation of, well, what are we gonna, are we gonna do nothing? Right, are we just not going to control mosquitoes? Florida is a pretty miserable place without mosquito control. Uh, that's why people's property taxes were set up many years ago, long before Zika showed up, to control mosquitoes. Uh, and then on top of that, the world is becoming a very small place. We have globalization. Not only Zika coming in, but dengue, chikungunya. You may not have heard of that one, but yes, we've had local cases in the US. It's uh, another virus that's transmitted by mosquitoes. And we're not only getting new, new pathogens coming into the U.S., but also new mosquitoes. Um, if you've been out working in your garden here in Kentucky, you're probably getting bitten by a little, uh, it's a pretty mosquito if you take time to look at it before you slap it. It has little white and black stripes on its leg. It's called the tiger mosquito, uh, but it's from Asia. It did not occur in the United States prior to 1985. We brought that in accidentally, not me. Um, but it was brought in. So we're, we're moving not only pathogens around, but also mosquitoes. And so 
doing nothing is becoming more and more of a, of a difficult choice. We have to do something. And on top of that, a lot of the chemical pesticides that we've used traditionally for controlling mosquito populations, we're seeing more and more insect insecticide resistance. Uh, genetic selection. We are selecting mosquitoes that are resistant to these compounds because we keep using them over and over again. So we need new tools. And what's being proposed in the Florida Keys and, and other places is that this is a new way to control mosquitoes, um, and <clears throat> which does not have resistance. And, and Steve, so you, you work with mosquitoes, and you work with uh, uh, Wolbachia, right? A, a bacteria that infects the mosquitoes. And so how are you using this for similar sorts of issues? So um, um, that's absolutely correct. Uh, it's essentially the exact same technology. We would come to your backyard, and we would release 10,000 male mosquitoes. And in fact, we've already done this in Lexington. Um, we've done studies in 2014 and 2015. This is being regulated by the Environmental Protection Agency, which is, uh, they commonly regulate pesticides. <coughs> um, but the, well, back, the difference is, is that this is a non-genetic non modification approach. We're using a naturally occurring bacterium that occurs already in mosquitoes, uh, and, and at the University of Kentucky has developed a technology to move this bacterium around. And by moving this bacterium, you can induce a form of sterility. And I'm glad to sit around and, and tell you more about it. But essentially, the bacterium's causing the sterility. Um, and, uh, and so that's the approach. OK, thank you. So it's sort of a natural approach to accomplishing a very similar sorts of thing. OK. Um, and so plants, right, mosquitoes, um, how about the, the sort of the, the, the warm and fuzzy things, the mice and the humans, right? Uh, we have these gene editing technologies. We're able to go in and make changes in organisms and potentially even in humans. Um, how can we use these, these very precise gene editing technologies in the treatment of, of uh, human disorders, hereditary disorders like cystic fibrosis or acquired disorders like cancer? So how are these actually being applied? What is the potential, Brett? So, you know, Brian, you started off talking about uh, Thomas Hunt Morgan and his fruit flies, where a red-eyed fruit fly, is, his eyes turned white. And that was because of mutation in the gene that affected eye color. Um, and that really begs the question, if you can take a normal gene and mutate it into something that's not normal, can you also take an abnormal gene and turn it back into a normal gene. And so that kind of question had been considered for many, many years by scientists, and I think for many human geneticists, it's really driven the research. Um, it really has been a pipe dream for a long time, but there's been technologies that have come about in really the last 10 or 15 years, um, sort of collectively technologies called genome or gene editing, um, with the possibility that we could actually try to Take a, or, or take a mutated gene and actually do something, modify that gene so now it's a wild-type gene. And it's an it's a emerging technology. It's, it's rapidly changing. Um, but really, in the last couple of years, there's a system, and it's, it's, it's a system that's called CRISPR-Cas. And it's not a type of system that, that scientists discovered out of nowhere. It's actually a, a system that bacteria use um, to protect them from infection from bacterial viruses. And scientists 
learned about this system that bacteria use, and scientists have modified this CRISPR-Cas system so that it can be used in, in mammalian cells and can go in and use these, this CRISPR-Cas enzyme and actually fix genes within a normal cell. So um, this idea of, of actually fixing mutated genes has gone from a, from a real pipe dream to being reality in just the last couple of years. Um, inherited diseases, hereditary diseases, um, Many of that, we may have family members that may have hereditary diseases. Brian mentioned cystic fibrosis is one, and, and there's others as well. Collectively, these various types of diseases are a huge burden on society. And there's also um, acquired diseases too, such as, such as cancer. And many of these diseases have a genetic component. So there's a huge interest in trying to use this type of technology to fix and correct genes within cells. So, so can we take this back to Jeremiah Smith, right? So now Jeremiah is, says we get a $1,000 genome, and you can get enormous amounts of genetic information for 100 bucks, right? When you go to 23andMe and Ancestry.com, they're going to sequence a lot of information. How can you use this sort of very personalized individual information, you know, your genome, your genome, and relate that to potential medical applications? Well, that's, that's where it gets a little complicated. I'm actually, I'm in the process of doing my medical genetics lectures, and I'll be talking about this tomorrow morning. So this is sort of a trial run here. Um, but since we, we have this ability to, to, to fix genes, um, it really, and we have the ability to, to identify potential mutations in, in genomes, um, how are we going to really use this information? Uh, um, and that really is the ethical issue. Um, we can fix genes in mice now. Now you may, if you wake up in the morning and you see a mouse uh, on your kitchen floor, you're going to have a lot of thoughts. But one of your thoughts is not going to be, that mouse is really pretty related to me. But in reality, our genomes are quite similar. So um, we are in a position right now where we can fix genes in mice. And so the, the, the leap to actually fixing genes in humans is not really that far away. So it's no longer a technical issue. It's really an ethical issue about you know, who's going to be making decisions and, and, and how are we going to really apply this technology to human diseases? That's, that's a very complicated question. Well, thank you. And I, I know we've seen some reports of experiments actually being initiated in China, for instance, along those, along those lines. But you raised the E word, the ethical word, right? So we now have the ability to go in and make changes. We know a lot through you know, the, the 70 years worth of molecular biology about genes and what they do. So potentially you can combine those two and start creating organisms that are improved, that are better. Uh, you might get taller UK basketball players. Uh, you might you know, get blonde, uh, blonde hair rather than brown hair. And these sorts of changes are practical. Okay, or practical is the wrong one. They're possible now, and it potentially could be practical. Uh, you could have those designer babies, uh, but should we be even thinking along those lines? So, so Julia, uh, as, a, as a philosopher and someone that thinks about these ethical issues, how are we dealing with these questions that have really never been asked before? Well, so I, I guess I'm actually going to correct the last part. I think they have been asked before, and one of the biggest ways that uh, philosophy, and specifically ethical philosophy, engages with the sciences and with the public is to help raise those sorts of questions and figure out how to answer them. So 
Um, I guess I want to I want to get started by distinguishing a couple different ways that we might think about what a what a designer baby is, and that's it's somewhat common vocabulary probably up at the front here, but uh, just to be clear, by designer babies we mean taking those gene editing technologies and applying them to the human genome and creating new human offspring that have um, have genetic modifications of some sort. So um, we're not doing that, right? That's not happening yet. Please don't run home in fear. Um, and there was actually a meeting at the end of 2015 um, with scientists from the US and the UK and China coming together in Washington DC to talk about this exact question of when, if ever, we're going to be doing that. Um, when, if ever, we're going to use something called gene editing, the stuff that we've been talking about, to change what human inheritance looks like. Um, now, we are all, in some sense, products of selective breeding, right? We are not animals running off in the wild. Uh, we have tools like language, like citizenship, that limit the kinds of partners that we end up with and the kinds of offspring that should we choose to have them, we end up having. We also have a lot of technologies that go into the reproductive and birth processes already. Just the very idea of hospitalizing mothers as they're um, giving birth or of having neonatal intensive care units is a relatively novel way of handling human reproduction. Um, we can also get a little bit closer to that line of the designer baby if we think about things like in vitro fertilization and testing for genetically inherited diseases, heritable diseases in the womb, and then in some cases at least offering the, the prospective parents the option of whether or not they're going to carry an embryo to term that has that sort of disease. Um, so we're already approaching the line of designing our children. Um, and we're not at the point yet where we're doing sort of voluntary enhancements of the sorts that Brian was, uh, was suggesting, things like making our basketball players taller, giving our children the eye color or the hair, hair color that we want, making them smarter, making them right-handed or left-handed, any, any sort of modification that we could think of. Um, and we're not going to get there anytime soon. We're not going to get there anytime soon, not because in principle we couldn't, but because as you've heard, I think I was counting the speakers who've, who've talked so far, all of them mentioned engagement with either the government or society in at least some way. Brett, you were the most borderline case, but I heard, <laughs> I, I at least heard in there, you know, we, we have these heritable diseases that are a burden on society, so I'm going to count it. Um, you know, Stephen was talking about voting to, on whether or not to release mosquitoes in Florida and about the EPA regulating the release of mosquitoes here. Jeremiah had a slide from the government that we were going to see uh, and had to recreate it on the fly. And, and Paul was talking about the difference between or similarities between European and American handling of genetically modified foods. So um, there's... 
there's heavy engagement between science and society on any level. And part of what I do as a philosopher of science, um, and I should say I am also playing an ethicist on TV right now, uh, I do philosophy of science, which is related and asks about what the nature of the scientific enterprise is. Uh, but my research doesn't, doesn't aim to answer primarily ethical questions. Um, so when we, when we look at the relationships between science and society, between science and the government, um, one of the things that we see is that science is fundamentally a human activity. It's very different to say that we're going to use the fruits of science to affect our lives than to affect the lives of the mice and the mosquitoes and the Drosophila, the, the fruit flies, in our labs. Um, because we are the ones who are doing the science. And so we have to treat science a little bit differently when we're thinking about the impact that it's going to have on our lives. Um, and especially when science, in turn, asks us to to question what our lives are. You know, we're, we're running up against the question of what it means to be human, which is fundamentally not a scientific question, but it's one that I think for the first time with some of these CRISPR and Cas... I say Cas9, is that...? Yeah, CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing technologies, we have uh, a new ability to change our genetic code. And so as, as humanists, as philosophers, as social scientists, as an engaged public, like those of you sitting in the audience right now, we need to figure out whether being able to control the, the color of our offspring's eyes, the height of our offspring, the intelligence of our offspring, the predispositions toward mental illness or anger of our offspring, toward addiction, are going to fundamentally change what it means to be human. So um, I, I guess I just want to close by telling you a little bit about where we are right now. I mentioned that uh, we had this international summit on human gene editing at the end of 2015, which decided that we are not going there yet. We are not going there anytime soon. We have exactly as long as this species survives to try to answer the problem, answer the question of whether or not we should affect the way that we reproduce in this manner. Um, and one of the big questions is, if we do this wrong, we're not going to have that much more time to survive, right? We've seen the, uh, the terrible destruction that selective breeding uh, taken to its eugenic ends can bring around to human societies in the form of, um, well, the, the holocaust of the middle of the 20th century, but also um, holocausts that have continued and still continue today. Um, so right now there are restrictions on what sorts of research were we as scientists here are allowed to do. Um, we are not allowed to gene edit human germ lines. These are the sorts of genetic lines that can be passed down through inheritance. Um, there are discussions about whether or not it will ever be okay to edit somatic lines, which are lines that would not be passed down over time. Um, and I think Brian mentioned in the, in the lead up here, 
there was actually a study done on non-viable embryos uh, in China. These were uh, embryos that would not have any chance of survival, so we're not running up against these, uh, these touchy questions of whether or not that embryo could then become a person and whether or not we're sacrificing a human life. Non-viable embryos. Um, because of the ethical concerns, both Science and Nature, the two big research journals, have rejected that paper coming out of China. That's a stance that the scientific community is taking and will continue to take until such a time as they've addressed it to their satisfaction. The way they're going to address it to their satisfaction is not by doing more science, but by involving the public, by involving philosophers, by involving um, historians and bioethicists, people who uh, spend their time and their expertise studying the ways in which we've messed this up in the past and the ways that we might be less likely to mess it up in the future. So I think I'm going to leave it there. Thank you, Julia. Obviously very, very complex and interval. You know, involves religion. It involves lots of lots of issues that uh, are not easily resolved. Um, we're going to just take a, a quick break, and I'm going to say that we're going to we put some pieces of paper there. If you had any questions that you wanted to write down for the panel, um, uh, Megan's going to walk around. If you just pass them to the end of the aisle. And, uh, and she will read them. We have one more speaker we're gonna chat with here. If you didn't write anything down, that's also okay, okay? Because you can just yell it out and that's going to work. But my last question is, is really is to Pete. And, and so, so uh, Pete Marabito teaches a very large genetics course, uh, composed from sophomores to seniors at the undergraduate level. And I guess the question now in my mind is, you know, how do you, we, we've, we've, we've covered a lot of, a lot of material here, right? Uh, how do you teach genetics now? Is, is our fruit flies still relevant? Are Mendel's crosses still relevant? Um, how do you incorporate these sorts of new technologies in a way that becomes accessible and useful for the next generation of educated adult? Uh, thanks. Yeah, so um, lots of, uh, and so there are supposed to be some teachers here. Are there people who teach? It's okay if you teach at UK or anywhere else or how many people are teachers so that's cool all right so um i think i will get to the specific form of your question and maybe just take a, a side road to get there so th the first thing is that if you're teaching then you realize that there's challenges inherent in teaching regardless of whether it's genetics or or anything um and uh so that, so just getting people to learn something that they may or may not be interested in is, is a relatively challenging task. And so for biology, which includes genetics, then uh, there are several kinds of challenges that are particularly um, on my mind every time I get up in front of a bunch of people. One of them is that biology itself is incredibly integrative. I mean, I don't know if it's the most integrative science that we try to teach people, but I don't know of any other science that's more integrative. When we're talking about genetics, that's just one part of biology. There is biochemistry, the people that study how all these enzymes that we've been talking about editing genomes work. Uh, there is physiology, how those, how the animals and plants respond to their natural environment and all of these genetic insults that 
that we may be uh, imposing upon them. Um, there are dynamics at population levels that people study. So there, there are, there are so bio, any kind of biological teaching is challenging simply because it involves lots of different sciences. And so to, to teach biology and to understand it, you have to be incredibly broad in terms of, your, of what you know, and getting people there is, is quite challenging. And then, so then, for, and within each of these individual areas, the growth of information is exponential. I mean, just the example for DNA sequencing, that's just sequence information, but technologies are driving increases in information in all of these separate areas. So now you have this incredibly broad, multi-dimensional type of thing you're trying to teach people, and the, the information stream is huge, so the amount of data that's there is enormous. And so, the, the, so then, you have, then you have to make decisions about exactly what your job is in teaching. Are you supposed to impart like all of this information into everybody's head and how many class periods and how is that supposed to work? And so that's quite a challenge uh, to undertake. Um, and then the third kind of challenging thing, regardless of whether you're interested in genetics or any other area of biology, is that the students that we find in front of us that we're trying to educate are more diverse than they've ever been in a college setting. And so you're not just talking to that person that's just like you were back when you were like a really super excited 18-year-old pre-scientist, but you're talking to people that come to the university or the college for many different reasons, all with you know, tremendous aspirations for success, all with a complete right to have uh, gain something from their interaction with you and your teaching. And so this third component on top of, you know, the diversity of the science and the enormous amounts of data and then the diversity of the student population really does present tremendous challenges. And so it doesn't matter whether you're trying to make fruit fly genetics relevant or any other aspect of biology relevant. These are things that, you know, you have to sort of recognize. And so, um, so the, and, 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 be, and, and because uh, biology has largely been taught by research scientists kind of at the university level, then you're dealing, then you are, as a teacher, incredibly well um, prepared and trained to take somebody in the lab and to show them exactly how to do these incredibly cool experiments within your own expertise but you've received actually almost zero training in how to teach other people about why anybody would even want to do such a thing or about how to think about it, how to read the newspaper, how to you know, filter the reports that they hear from various sources. And so, you, so the, you know, you're kind of left out there hoping that you can figure something out. And so one of the approaches uh, that, that I've taken that lots of uh, trained researchers have taken is to kind of turn to people who have expertise as teachers and try to get them to kind of serve intermediate levels of, of training scientists in how to teach. And luckily there are uh, nationally funded movements that help with that and they try to distill all of this information down to some maybe some fundamental principles and then you teach around that. And so, for example, to the fruit fly is you can use Morgan's fruit fly to teach some very fundamental principles of inheritance. You know, you would like a biology major to know where babies come from. And you would be surprised at how little 
everybody knows about where babies come from. And so the fruit fly is great because it makes lots of babies and it makes them really fast. You know, you start, you put parents together 10 days later, hundreds of babies, and you can examine them for how inheritance works for different traits. And regardless of whether the person that you've just taught that to is interested in CRISPR-Cas or genetically modified organisms or, any, or, or sequencing genomes, making any sense of any of that is impossible if they don't know where babies come from. And so part of the challenge then is to relate the things that they're really excited about. I mean, they want, like a student will just be like, you know, I'll be talking about whatever in genetics, and they'll be like, yeah, but what about CRISPR-Cas? What about CRISPR-Cas? And I'm like, well, okay, let's use these simpler enzymes to like cut up DNA and modify it, and, and tell me what you learned about that. They're like, oh, I can't make any sense of that at all. And I'm like, well, then don't worry about CRISPR-Cas, okay? I mean, let's look, look at how you already, like a simple system, for cutting and modifying DNA. If you understand that, then CRISPR-Cas is just a small step away. And so I think the challenge is in finding and, and using resources, like I said, there are national movements that are identifying fundamental issues within areas of biology that are not discipline specific. You know, they don't say you have to teach genetics. They don't say you have to teach biochemistry. They say, look, Make sure people understand evolution as a foundation for understanding why anything is the way it is in biology. Make sure people understand that regardless of what kind of organism you're talking about, there are pathways within that organism for transforming energy and matter. And that's how life works. You know, remember, make sure that they understand that all organisms have systems for, for processing and passing on information. I mean, these are not topics of, these are not titles of courses, these are not within disciplines, but these are fundamental ideas that span across all of these crazy areas of biology. And if you could get people to understand those things, then they have like the toolkit that they need to start to understand all of these more complex issues and make sense of it. Because right now, all they can really do is listen to their favorite person, hear that person's opinion, and then run with that. Because making more sense of it than that is beyond their, their scope. And so that's, um, so I, I, I got fruit flies in there, I think. <laughs> Close enough. Getting them to think critically, getting them to think like a scientist. About get, fundamental about things, fundamental not things. about millions of pieces of details. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, time for questions from the audience. And Megan has gone through the audience and collected your questions. I've got a couple of my own, so I'm going to use my privilege of having a microphone <laughs> to ask a couple questions here. If you have any questions, this is going to be an additional time for you to go ahead and write them down. Megan will kind of take a look again to see if you've got any questions. We'll collect them. But let me start off by saying, Dr. Burston, while you were talking, I was thinking about a poster I saw this week. Up the top it said, Sciences, it's a two-panel poster, it says Sciences, and it shows a guy in a white coat standing next to a T-Rex. It says, Teaching how to clone the Tyrannosaurus Rex. The next panel says, Humanities, which is a whole crew of white-coated people running down the hall being chased by a T-Rex. It says, <laughs> whether it's a good idea or not to clone one. So, question I've got first off is about genetically modified foods and organisms, and we're talking not even necessarily artificially modified, 
But if you take a look at the history of corn back up in the Andes, originally started as a grass with four or five kernels on it. So when you eat Silver Queen corn today, it's technically a genetically modified organism, as are bananas, which started out as just a little tiny seed kind of pod with not much meat in it. So what's the difference between these naturally modified organisms and the new generation of technically modified organisms? Yeah, good, good question. It's, um, yeah, I, I hope I can give you a good answer in a short time. It's, um, so yeah, the, all, all of our crops, essentially all of our crops are genetically modified through human domestication and then breeding processes. And um, so, yeah, genetic modification is something we consume as well, con continuously. Um, the, uh, there are, you, if we focus on genetic engineering, there are particular types of genetic changes, classes of genetic changes you can make, ranging from uh, now with uh, genome editing technologies, very targeted mutations, no differently from what would happen through natural processes, um, th all the way through to what's called a transgene. And a transgene is a gene that is out from outside the breeding pool. So if we have corn, it doesn't naturally breed with a bacterium. And so if we take a gene from a bacterium, that's a transgene. Um, corn doesn't breed with apple. So if we take a gene from apple and put it in corn, that's a transgene. So now we've breached um, reproductive barriers and um, in terms of food safety risk, that breach doesn't create a particular new you know, new risk for, for consumption, but it does potentially create a risk for ecological disruption. And I, I, I want to stress that my opinion on this and, and I, the one I see shared by experts throughout the world is it's pretty hard to imagine ecological catastrophe through a transgene uh, flow into a neighboring species because barrier, biological barriers still exist in, in, in nature. But, um, but it is possible to imagine that a transgene in corn could then spread to the progenitor of corn, the grass that is the progenitor of corn, and cause some ecological change to occur over time. So, so that's, um, I, I hope I've framed an answer for your question. Well, it has differentiated between what is natural, the Incas practiced yeah. genetic modification, and what we're talking about in modern modification. I have one other question, too. We're talking about the progression from penicillin through now vancomycin, and it's still not nailing MRSA. Genetically, is there an answer? to the question of superbugs, which is so prevalent these days. I guess I'm the, <laughs> everyone's looking at We're me. We're all looking at you. <laughs> well, so, <laughs> natural selection is, is one of the foundations of, of, of evolution, that um, when, when a species is confronted with a challenge, it tries to respond to that challenge and bacteria can what the if the challenge is a certain type of antibiotic the bacteria respond to that by by their mutations that occur and if a mutation occurs then a, a 
drug-resistant bacterium might, you know, arise from that, and then um, it's no longer responsive to drugs. And we've used a lot of different antibiotics over the last several decades, and bacteria have evolved or mutated so they're no longer sensitive to those types of drugs. Um, really, I think what has to be done is that we've got to develop new types of antibiotics, and, and uh, that's the real challenge, and that's a big challenge in the biotech industry to try to develop new types of drugs that now will treat these types of pathogens that are resistant to what we're already using. So there's no possibility, like with the mosquitoes being genetically engineered, that we could genetically engineer an anti-MRSA? My feeling is that would be awfully challenging. I don't know. Actually, I have a comment on that. Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> so this has nothing to do with genetic modification, and I hope everyone here has strong stomachs, but there actually is uh, something known as maggot therapy, where people intentionally introduce flesh-eating maggots, uh, immature flies, into the wound that then eat away the, the, the sick flesh, uh, but then stop when they get to the good stuff. They, they don't eat um, healthy, healthy tissue. So but they're not gen genetically modified, but it, when you mention the, the mosquito example, mosquitoes are flies, and these are flies, so it's somewhat related. <laughs> and just, just one other aspect of that is that I think that one thing you can do is you can also just sort of couch that question a little bit differently, and you can just remind people about the benefits that antibiotics have provided to society. I mean, in, in the, before antibiotics were around, people died from very simple infections. And so this, um, this sort of monster where MRSA is an example that we've created is, is prominent as kind of like a problem that's been caused by technology. And really, it, it wasn't. It's not a problem caused by technology. We had a technology that solved really bad problems, and now we have this new version that we have to deal with. And, and it's very likely it involves just further research on more types of antibiotics. And by the way, just as a footnote, Dr. Dobson, friend of mine, high school student, badly injured in a soccer incident, his leg was saved by the maggot therapy. Oh, cool. So it is important therapy. We're going to go to some questions from the audience. This is from Damien. Dr. Vincelli, can you explain the similarities, differences? between genetic modification of organisms versus traditional breeding. I think we've covered this a little bit, but what are the unique risks to genetic modification techniques? And I can not read, how are they mitigated? Yeah, we've sort of covered, thanks Damien, we've sort of covered some of that. Uh, and of course, you know, I teach a two semester course in this, so we, you know, we can't cover the full range of risks uh, that, that relate, but, um, but, I, but I guess I would once again distinguish between transgenes, which are out, come from outside the breeding pool, from cisgenes, which are genes from within the breeding pool that we have engineered. So an apple gene inserted into another apple is a cisgene. That's really, we're mimicking nature, but just speeding the process. Or very extremely limited mute, mute, uh, targeted mutagenesis, which is still within the breeding pool. So in other words, we can do engineering in different ways um, that, that, uh, that uh, you know, affect the, the risk that we're 
uh, we're, you know, we're facing. And so transgenes, as I said, that poses some risk of ecological disruption. The other two practices are both genetic engineering, but don't introduce anything from outside the breeding pool. So that, that would be one component of the, the answer. There are social considerations with genetic engineering. I think Brian, uh, Dr. Ryman has brought up a few of those. And you know, one is the patent issue. Is it, is it, is it just to patent um, uh, you know, DNA, basically, or genes and so on? And, I, and that's an interesting discussion. Patents have a finite lifetime, 20 years in the United States. So, uh, and many ge genetic engineering traits that are being developed are being developed um, for free distribution. Uh, they're funded publicly and expected to be distributed freely. So, um, so there are social considerations. Um, I've covered uh, the transgene issue, biological considerations. Yeah, I mean, I think the one more, the one final thing to mention is what you brought up. When 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 you introduce, if you have a a genetic trait that is, you know, just gangbusters, and you know that growers are going to want it, and it's going to do good things because that's why the growers want it. Well, that trait may end up in millions of acres of cropland, and um, so now you've introduced this widespread genetic uniformity for at least that genetic sequence. And we know as plant pathologists this increases the risk of epidemics when you introduce widespread genetic uniformity. So, so that's a risk. Um, the, the risk exists for conventional breeding too. It's not unique to genetic engineering. We see the same thing, we see the same risk with conventional breeding. Um, but, um, but, but sometimes there's trade-offs and we have to consider you know, what, what's the benefit of the technology versus what are we, what are we risking. Okay, thank you. Another question from Damien for Dr. Burston. How is the cost-benefit of human genetic modifications measured, and what are the costs of waiting? Um, wow, Damien, you're on fire. Uh, so, so before I answer that, I actually wanted to, to follow up on the previous answer with, with just a bit of an aside, because we're sitting in a public library right now, and there are very good books on, um, I, I, I like science fiction a lot, actually. We have classes at UK that teaches science fiction and philosophy. And um, there's a book called The Wind-Up Girl by an author named, I think, Paolo Bacigalupi, uh, which takes this question of what happens if we let a company like Monsanto own the reproductive rights to our food supply uh, to a really interesting dystopian end that also introduces a number of issues about the question of what counts as a human being. They have a, a sort of subspecies of humans that have been genetically engineered and no longer count as human beings within the book. So uh, rush to the stacks as soon as you leave and yeah. see if we can find it here. It's, it's an excellent book. Um, and I actually think for, for the question of costs and benefits of uh, of editing or failing to edit, well, we can actually look at science fiction again with um, classic works by Huxley and Orwell of things like 1984 and Brave New World. That's the worry that we have, the Brave New World worry, the Gattaca worry, the worry um, specifically that the people who have more resources now are going to take advantage of gene editing earlier and more often and with more frequency and it's going to then perpetuate inequalities in society rather than 
uh, doing what I think most responsible researchers want it to do, which is to raise everyone up to a uh, to a healthier and uh, more productive baseline for for human society. So. I think in terms of the cost-benefit analysis, um, this, is, this is where we run into the issue of what is, the, what is the job of the humanities, what is the job of the sciences. Cost-benefit analysis is the job of the sciences, right? I, uh, I do conceptual analysis, not cost-benefit analysis. So, um, so it's, it's a little bit of a tricky way of framing it, but if we think about um, a, a broader perspective on what the risks are, um, not just from a scientific point of view, not just from a, you know, we could accidentally cause an epidemic or wipe out, I don't know, an entire gender, um, which would then wipe out the other gender pretty rapidly afterward. Um, the, the risks of uh, affecting societal change by affecting genetic change in in ways that are irreparable and that are used for evil rather than for good or at least for neutral rather than for good um, are are ones that if we were to put them up against the benefits of eliminating diseases like cancer heritable diseases like sickle cell um, cystic fibrosis um, being able to prolong everyone's life so that I think, I was reading something the other day that said we're, we have some sort of default max human lifespan around 120 years. Someone did a calculation, and again, I'm not a calculator. I don't know where those sorts of calculations might have come from. But, you know, I increasing human lifespan so that we are able to contribute more to society, to pass down more to our children, to do more science. It takes a lot of resources to train a scientist, and they they expire at some point. <laughs> um, so if we could if we could make longer living people, uh, we wouldn't have to train as many scientists. We could get more science done. Um, it's it's not clear which of those columns we should land in, uh, but to me and to the the scientific communities of at least the big three countries that are working with gene editing systems at this point, the risks are uh, are significantly outweighing the potential for benefit. Okay, thank you. I will say since you're mentioning science fiction authors. I'd like to throw one more at you, which is Dr. Stanislaw Lem, L-E-M. Mm -hmm. And some of his works are interesting because one of his short stories talks about a future society where genetic body modifications are possible. If you want four arms, you can have them. If you want five eyes, you can have them. And he couches it in such a language it's believable and it really throws your mind into what would some of this genetic modification on a practical basis be like? So Stanislaw Lem is a, somebody you might want to look at. One last question here from Damien, then I'm going to get on to some of these other questions. Dr. Dobson, is the goal of the Florida mosquito genetic modification the extinction of the species? Is that a possible future outcome? Yeah, that's a, a question that, that we actually get quite a lot. It's a good question. Um, 
what what are the uh, risks of success? Um, what if we did? What if we could? Um, a lot of people would say mosquitoes probably one of those things that most people would say, yeah, let's get rid of it. Um, just like smallpox. Let's. Uh, uh, however. Um, that's not the goal of that particular, uh, the, in the Florida Keys. It's being used as a pesticide. It would be a localized reduction, maybe an elimination from uh, their islands, so that makes it a bit easier to eliminate it from, from an island. But you're still going to have that species in far, far too much of the world, uh, so it would not be a global extinction. Okay, and I did attend Dr. Carroll's lecture the other night at UK, and he talks about the ecological matrix that we exist in. So extinction of the mosquitoes might not be such a good idea in the long run, right? Just one species. Right. Yeah, and many people are aware there are over 2,000 different species of mosquitoes, and only a handful of those bother humans at all. Many of them are flying around and they're feeding on lizards or turtles, and they have no interest in us whatsoever. Some don't even blood feed. So I don't think anyone would propose to get rid of all mosquitoes. It's just those that are actually vectoring uh, human pathogens. Of course, unless you're a lizard, you might have a different perspective. <laughs> but lizards don't do science. <laughs> it, it, it's an interesting question, Dave, but the number of species that go extinct on a yearly basis, you know what the number is? It depends upon what you call. I mean, if you look at microbes and things, estimates range up to 1,000 on a yearly basis. Right. So these things happen, you know. And the other, the other point I'll, I'll make, not that it's a good thing, not in, in other words, erasing one more, not necessarily a good thing, but it, uh, extinctions do happen. They continue. They've always happened. The other thing is the sort of cross-species transfer of, of DNA, this recombinant DNA, that actually happens in nature. And so, you know, lateral transfer of genes goes on, and so we have in our genomes remnants of viral genes that are there uh, in microbial populations, which make up the majority of the genetic information on Earth. They're freely exchanging information. Uh, information goes, you know, even into uh, uh, bigger things like algae and, and uh, bryophytes. So these organisms are transferring nucleic acid. So we're doing it in a tactical way, an understandable way, but nature's actually doing these things on her own. See, I knew, Brian, you're after my radio job because you just gave the perfect lead-in to our question from Eric, who said, at what point do you reach when you introduce foreign DNA sequences into the human genome that you become something other than human? Yeah, I'll I'll start and then I'll let you guys get. Do you the guys mechanisms. want me to throw it a <laughs> at this point? Well, so, so let's start with some technologies that I see in the audience. Uh, clothes, first of all, don't affect whether or not we're human. Whether you're wearing glasses, at one point was considered an enhancement. We do still consider it an enhancement. Doesn't affect whether or not you're a human being. Um, getting LASIK surgery, Fixing permanently the problems that glasses, the glasses give us probably doesn't affect whether you're a human. May, according, according to some theories of personal identity, may affect whether or not you're the same human. Um, 
it doesn't make sense to talk about what constitutes a human by a particular clump of cells, partly because we recycle our cells every seven years, right? Probably something like that. That's like the high school biology version of that story that I learned. And um, but so so we we do things all the time. We become vegetarian. We get sick. We ha not because we become vegetarian, but <laughs> we get sick. We take antibiotics. We move to a different country. We, we affect change around our bodies, around our consciousnesses that can change who we think we are, um, what kind of person we think we are. We get married, we change our status as a legal citizen. Um, we incorporate ourselves and change our status as a legal citizen. Um, so so there's, there's a series of complicated questions about what it means to be the same person. And we could think about taking a body and presenting it with all of these different features and starting to strip away those features that are inessential to what it means to be a human being. Um, whether, whether or not it's the same human being as the human being you were yesterday or the human being who's sitting next to you, probably not the same human being in that case. Um, so, so there's not going to be one answer. There's not going to be, you know, if, if I did that exercise of stripping away everything that's inessential, the color of my hair, the color of my eyes, the tone of my voice, the training in philosophy and in my case chemistry that I've had, uh, the clothes that I wear, where I live, what language I speak, I'm probably still a human being at the end of all of that. I could keep going and at some point I'm going to hit my personal bottom out point for I am no longer human, probably around where you remove my brain or possibly my heart or possibly my uh, genetic inheritance from my parents or some combination of genetic inheritance and the training that I've had through my education, through my life experiences that have made me the kind of person that I am. Um, and, you know, if I, if I asked Jeremiah to do that, I'm, to do the same thing, and I'm not going to put him on the spot, but he would come up with a different answer. I think each of us would come up with a slightly different answer. And what we need as a society when we're thinking about uh, these issues of whether or not we're going to start gene editing collectively is not to all have the same answer, because we're never going to, but to have all considered the question and come up with a sort of minimum set of requirements that we think are acceptable. And at that point, we'll start advancing the line forward a little bit, maybe, someday. Um, so I, I don't know if that's a direct answer to the question of what is a human being, but uh, if you're not satisfied, take a philosophy class. <laughs> that's all we do. We can, can I just, so, so we can also do the biological uh, version of that, and that's uh, so to employ the biological species concept. So, uh, so an individual would stop being human based on the biological definition of a species if you create a genetically di different former humans that could no longer effectively breed with everybody else, but they could breed with each other. And then they would become a different species according to our biological definition of species. So I which, think that earlier hoo-ha-ha -ha was deserved on that one, right? Yeah. yeah. So, Got another question here. Oh, Jeremiah has one. Oh. I just add one sort of comment. 
Um, so, so part of this is also in the definition of a human in terms of um, having a particular sequence, and and I and I think some perspective on this is provided by um, this growing realization as we sequence more and more human genomes that um, when we sequence the human genome, that that genome that we that we published online is not actually representative of any living human on the face of the earth. It's it, it, it's sort of a, a lowest common denominator um, genome um, and, and erroneous in many places and certainly not reflective of your genome or the genome, the half of your genome that was inherited from your mother and the half that was inherited your father from your father, which are also not identical to each other and which very frequently can differ by amounts of DNA that would constitute an extraordinarily large cassette of genes um, in, in a transgenic situation. Um, and so defining a human on the basis of simply the amount or specific sequence of the DNA is, is something that's, um, it's, it's sort of an imprecise definition, I, I think. Well, as we're all sitting here, let me just ask you quickly, Dr. Smith, how do our genomes differ, differ potentially, this is hypothetical, from a Neanderthal man? Well, I mean, those some of the sequencing has been done. Um, and so, well, part of the idea is that the, the biological species concept, um, it, it, if you take the existing studies at, at face value, um, Suggest that a Neanderthal is a human. Um, so I mean, there's there's fairly good evidence and strong statistical support for the idea that um, at some point in history, um, humans interbred with Neanderthals or some common, some ancient hominid that was that was closely related to, to Neanderthals. Um, and so, and I mean, they have identified a few of the genes that differ. A few particular protein coding sequences that likely differ, a few of which have interesting stories but are difficult to prove. I mean, we can't say knock out FOX2 in a human and, and sort of ask whether it's, it speaks similarly to a Neanderthal. Um, also because we don't have a Neanderthal around to, to do the comparison against. Um, so, you know, those are difficult questions, but in, in, in you know, some sense, um, a Neanderthal would sort of be a, you might consider a human under a biological species concept, albeit maybe a kind of ugly human. Okay. <laughs> so you've never dealt with rugby players. Okay. Well, I mean, you know. <laughs> are there other examples of genetically modified animals other than mosquitoes that are being researched, particularly for disease control modifications? There are other genetically modified animals, um, yes. To my knowledge, none have been, uh, have received permits, at least in the U.S., for open release. But there are things like transgenic salmon, which grow faster. Uh, those are, I think, have received a commercial permit, but they're uh, not openly released into rivers. They're contained inside of ponds and that sort of thing. Um, I am not aware of any um, animals that have been transgenically modified for disease control. 
Okay, but there is work on genetically modifying it. There's certainly a lot of research in that direction, but nothing that's being released. Okay. Well, there are, and then there are many genetically modified animals that are used every day in labs all around the world for just studying basic processes of biology, like development and regeneration and inheritance. And so there's... I mean, I don't even know, like, what do you think the number would be of different species that are genetically modified for research purposes? It would be a hundred? Hundreds. So it's common practice in laboratories to have genetically modified uh, oh. organisms. We teach in the Drosophila lab in, in the biology department. We use genetically modified Drosophila because they allow us to really easily collect only female flies because... They're genetically modified to, for the males to die when we stick the vials at a certain temperature. So, so and this is just, these are like sophomores playing with these things. And so they're er everywhere in labs. Well, as I understand it, there is one supply company that takes great pride in having a genetically pure strain of white lab rats. So. Yeah. I'll also point out, too, that there are genetically modified um, sheep and goats that actually produce proteins, human proteins within right. these animals that are used for therapeutic purposes because there are some human diseases that people don't make certain proteins. Mm -hmm. And they've actually been able to generate animals that can make these proteins that can be used to treat human diseases. And human insulin was the first genetically modified human protein to be produced and that was produced in, and still is produced in bacterial cultures. Next question. And this kind of touches on, Brian, your comment. In the introduction, you stated there were possibilities for recreating extinct species. <laughs> what species are scientists slash biologists working on? What are the ethical issues if we were to actually realize a Jurassic Park situation? I'm not sure I want to touch this one, but the, um, and, and so, the quick answer is people have thought about it. There actually been some experiments. Was it an ibis? It was a bird that was actually an extinct animal, and they had some tissue, were able to do a, a, a transfer into another egg, got the animal back to life, but died shortly afterwards. So there's been at least one successful resurrection of, a dis of an extinct species. Uh, and there have been talked about things like you know, woolly mammoths. Yeah. Um, where, so in this resurrection hype, you know, a scenario, it's, it's typically uh, what we're thinking about are taking existing organisms and making incremental changes to change them back to something that looks, you know, taking the elephant and stepping it back to the woolly mammoth stage. Now, for woolly mammoth, I guess there's potential for actual having tissue. And so if you have tissue of an organism, potentially you're able to harvest all that genetic information, there is the potential to take that and physically transfer it from that dead organism into some living tissue and regenerate an organism. Uh, but the other more, the other approach is to take an existing living organism, take the genetic information that we know about from the dead organism and increment, incrementally change the genome of the living organism into something that was previously there. Now we do have a lot of genetic information about extinct species, because you can take very small bits of pieces of, of tissue or bone samples and actually find out what they, their genomes look like. So in other words, in 1912, 
According to the Cincinnati Zoo, the passenger pigeon went extinct. Is there any possibility we could bring them back to the point where they darken the skies again? There's a group working on that. Yeah, I suspect that the answer is yes for that, yes. Okay. There's a, did, did you have a comment on, the question, on that particular question? You raised your hand. No, I didn't. Okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, this last one is from L.W. Doctors Smith and Spears. What is the first type of cancer you think can be cured first? Genetic. Do we have any thoughts there? Well, I mean, genetically. It, dep what? Uh, it depends on what you mean. But, but it, I'm, well, that, that you, you give your answer, and I'll give it. Up. <laughs> I'll give a wronger answer. It's a good question. It's a it's a it's a it's a tough question. Um, many times, cancers have um, multiple genetic mutations by the time they really come to the forefront. So, in order to, to treat a cancer, potentially you're going to be able to. You, you may have to treat um, treat multiple genetic changes. But I think there are some cancers that we know a fair amount about. Um, in some cancers, there seems that there's several types of genes that are, that are really important. Um, there's a childhood cancer called retinoblastoma. It's, not, it's a rare cancer, but there's a particular type of gene that's often mutated. So there's sort of one gene that if you could maybe um, change that one gene, maybe you'd be able to treat that cancer. Um, there's a couple of genes called BRCA1 and BRCA2, which are associated with breast cancer, breast and ovarian cancer, and those are often mutated in, in there. So maybe another type of example where maybe some simple genetic changes that lead to that cancer, and those might be some types of cancers that you might be able to treat genetically more so than the more complex cancers. There's all, and along those lines, also some of the leukemias, there's certain types of specific changes. So I think. Maybe the, the cancers that have simpler genetic origins may be easier to treat than the ones that have more complex genetics. Yeah, I mean, you know, to sort of parrot your point is, you know, cancer is, cancer in general is a lot of things uh, genetically, and, and even breast cancer is a lot of things genetically, and even, you know, one person's breast cancer is genetically distinct. For, distinct from another person's breast cancer. They may share mutations in some of the genes, although those mutations, unless it's like BRCA1, which there are sort of inherited, there are variants within the population that you may be unlucky enough to inherit. Um, they, you know, cancers are, are individual things. Now, in terms of curing cancer, I mean, cancer's been cured a lot of times. Right. Um, cancer's been cured a lot of times using genetic information, and, and this is because it's, into, it's individual and we may be able to use information based on treatment of another patient or another cohort of patients to sort of begin to predict um, which treatments are likely to be effective. Although there are typically a lot of other mutations that are, that are important in the specific, specific evolution of one cancer lineage that may impact that treatment regime. Um, and so the idea of curing cancer is kind of like, it's, it's it's a it's a great idea, but it's a it's a very imprecise idea. Um, where, I, but but I think I mean really like we kind of do cure cancer. 
One last question here. I know the hour is growing late, and I did receive a note from somebody that says there's something else going on tonight a little later on that they want to get home for. I don't know what it could be, but last question tonight is what about inadvertent genetic engineering and the topic of diminishing the gene pool in the sense of the advances in neonatal medicines which take otherwise non-viable infants and allow them to live and advances in medicine that allow genes to continue in this collective gene pool that otherwise would have perished. Are we, in fact, weakening the human gene pool? <laughs> well, I mean, there's, I think, I mean, glasses kind of impact the same thing, right? Um, you know, before people invented glasses, if you were, you could have very poor vision and would be effectively blind, and glasses essentially cure that. Um, and being a human with, you know, with extreme nearsightedness, um, 2,000 years ago, you'd be in bad shape, right? Um, so, I mean, one can think, I mean, as you sort of mentioned modifications, right? I mean, one can sort of conceive of, I think, some of these treatments is, this is sort of a change in, a change in society or a change in the selective environment um, akin to what's occurred throughout, throughout you know, millennia in, in, in the same sense of, you know, we've invented clothes and houses. Um, and so, you know, there, that, that probably imparted some selection on the gene pool where now those individuals sort of are, or, or so humans in general are sort of quite dependent on clothes and houses, right? Yeah. At least I am. So yeah. that's kind of a straw horse, huh? Okay. Dr. Ryman, I'm going to turn it over to you to close things out on the stage. Thank you, Dave, and I want to thank the audience, and please join me in thanking the, the panel. <laughs>